Uh, Drake was singing those words. Uh, you might notice in your bulletin that um, tomorrow, the 29th, I believe, marks this church's 40th anniversary. So for 40 years, we have been like a bride uh, waiting for her groom. So we are a church for 40 years that's been waiting for the Lord, and He has been faithful to us for 40 years. As a matter of fact, if you would be, uh, I'd like for you to multitask this morning, and that is pay 100% attention to the message, while at the same time be thinking of ways that you are grateful for New Covenant Fellowship. Because during our praise time, I'd like to open it up uh, for, to give you an opportunity as you think about New Covenant Fellowship, what are you most grateful to God for? It can just be a one-liner, one word, or a quick little testimony. We won't have time to get uh, all of those so eager to share their praise and their gratitude. But if you could just be thinking, as you think about New Covenant Fellowship and how God has used it to bless you, He's been so faithful to us for 40 years. So, 100% attentiveness to the uh, message and um, 99% thinking about how grateful you are for the 40 years of New Covenant Fellowship. I thought I would at least give you advance warning. Because I know our minds wander, yes, even during the sermons. I'm guilty. Sometimes my mind wanders during the sermon. <laughs> so in chapter 16, wow, what a scene it was. And you had the seven angels that exited the very throne room of God that was just filled with glory and smoke. And in their hands, I'm assuming, were the seven bowls of wrath. And these seven bowls of wrath were specifically aimed at the wicked, specifically aimed at those who uh, wore the mark of the beast. And we read about an outbreak of sores. We read about bloody oceans and rivers that decimated marine life. Uh, We read about scorching sun and droughts. Uh, We read about um, darkness and rivers driving up so that armies could cross and go into battle. We read about the great city Babylon drinking the fury of God's cup of wrath. These were gruesome descriptions. This is a, a fierce wrath of God. And many times when we read these kind of descriptions, and, and really when we look at some of the things that happen in our world and the tragedies, we wonder, is God really justified? Or is that something that is, isn't that just a little too harsh? Uh, you know, we, we have a tendency in our minds to judge the judge, to scrutinize God. And yet in chapter 16, and that resonates with all of Scripture, Scripture can't say enough how absolutely righteous and just God's judgments are. So the closer you are to heaven, apparently, and the closer you are to God, you have a, a godlier perspective on sin and righteousness and just how righteous God is. And so, rather than questioning, you know, is God really, how could God uh, act so fiercely towards man? The real question is, how can man betray such a holy God? That's what kind of heaven wants to know. Right? We want to know, how can you judge us so severely? Heaven wants to know, how can you sin against such a righteous God? And so I'm so grateful for the perspectives that heaven gives us. And God is righteous and just, and so the punishment fits the crime. 
he is absolutely justified in all of his actions. And we were also informed in that chapter that even as God's wrath and judgment was being poured out on mankind, Scripture was sure to tell us that he did not repent. That in the midst of this wrath, rather than softening his heart and say, you're right, God, I'm a sinner against you, he continues to rebel against God and curse God in that. And so we get a picture of what's really in the heart of man in chapter 16. He curses God. The unregenerate man curses God to his very breath. And we know that God does not take these things lightly. He does not take idolatry or sexual immorality um, <clears throat> lightly. And so he, he, he doesn't take shedding the blood of the saints lightly. When believers are persecuted, when blood is spilled from God's people, it gets his dander up, so to speak. And so judgment will fall. It is falling and it will culminate and fall in a big, big way. Judgment will be released. You know, as I think about God's judgment, I was reminded of back in Genesis chapter 9 when God's judgment fell very severely upon the whole earth because all of man's thoughts were continually evil and his motives were continually evil. And God judged the earth with a worldwide flood and only one family was saved. And he, as a sign of his covenant, set in the sky after the flood waters receded a rainbow. And that rainbow signified God's promise to man that he will not destroy the earth in that way again. And I find it very ironic that uh, in our day and culture that we see a lot of rainbows. We see the rainbows in the LGBTQ community and it has become their symbol to symbolize something. And it's their symbol of uh, the colors represent diversity and the spectrum of human sexuality. There is no uh, sex, it's not a sexuality or sex isn't an immoral thing, it's a matter of preference. And yet we look at scripture and we see that there is such a thing as sexual immorality. But I find it uh, ironic that, you know, in Scripture how God uses the bow to symbolize His grace and His peace and His promise to man, and yet we even take that and defile it for our own use and make it symbolize something that it does not. But the interesting thing about that covenant symbol and sign, the rainbow, is that in Hebrew there is no word for rainbow. And it actually literally... The Hebrew word is war bow. And God says, I set my war bow in the sky. And a lot of scholars pick up on that and say, the rainbow is arched this way, the war bow is arched this way. In other words, it's pointing up. So if there were an arrow in that bow, it's as if God's saying, I'm, it's not pointed at you in this way anymore. It's pointed up into the sky. So no harm will come to you in this way. But make no mistake that there is, just like with a bow, there is a tension that God's righteousness has against sin and sinners. And we have to know that if God is really holy and just like He says He is, then sooner or later all of this will be stopped. In His righteousness, He will bring evil and wickedness to an end. And so in Revelation, with all of these series of, of judgments and wrath, 
It's as if um, God's wrath is kind of ratcheting back. It's as if you would, if you're this angry at, at a target, you might pull the bow back this far. But the angrier you get, the farther it goes. And there's this tremendous weight and tension against sin. And that's what we're reading about in Revelation, where the, the bottom falls out, so to speak. It's all released against sin. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is what we learn about in Revelation. But we also learn about the saints in the hands of a gracious God. Because God continues to remind us about how precious the saints are in His sight. Today we're going to look at chapter 17. And rather than reading the whole thing through, I want to just read it as we go. And first we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 17 in the book of Revelation And we'll look at the prostitute. Yes, I'm going to talk about a prostitute right here in church. So, kids, plug your ears. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk." And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Now the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. One of the angels gives John a front row seat to these judgments. Uh, what unfolds in the spiritual realm. And we see that these great evil powers will be judged by God one by one, the beast and the false prophet and so forth, and it will all culminate to the judgment of Satan. We have not gotten there yet. But for now, we see Babylon and all of her associates, the kings of the earth. Babylon, in this case, is the great prostitute. Not to be mistaken for the not-so-great prostitute. That's supposed to be humor, by the way. The prostitute is described as being seated on uh, a great sea of waters. And we have learned in this book and really in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were not fond particularly of the seas because that's where all the storms came from. It would wreak havoc on them. It was not a vacation spot for them. But there's also another sense in which these Uh, evil or the beast or the prostitute is seated over the seas. That word can also uh, be a metaphor of a mass of humanity. We even use the terminology today, there's a sea of people. It's like a sea of people out there. There's so many people. And that's how it's used in 1715. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So it's not literal 
waters or oceans. It is a sea of humanity. We saw the same thing when chapter 13 where the beast, he arose from the sea. It was a, from the sea of humanity. And so that is where evil resides or, or places itself over. And this prostitute thrives on the mass of humanity and nourishes this humanity by providing the evils to feed the sinful nature. So her clients are the kings of the earth, it says, or what we've come to know as earth dwellers, those that have made their lot with the world. They love the world more than God. They oppose God in favor of the world, great and small alike, and their names are not written in the book of life. They're worldwide seekers of immorality. Now this includes idolatry and immorality. Of course, the Lord is, uh, hates sexual immorality, but the, the, the great judgment against His own people of Israel was the sin of idolatry. And often He looks at the two as the same. Because in spiritual terms, when you commit sexual immorality, it is idolatry. You're cheating on God. And there are, there are descriptions in the Old Testament from God's perspective, how He feels about how His people are treating Him and looking at Him and how they are living their lives. And it becomes, quite frankly, kind of PG-13 in His descriptions. We look at Jeremiah 2.20. He says, yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. You get the point. And so there's this grave sin of immorality. And this prostitute represents all of this. Represents all of the idolatry and the immorality and the sin and all of earth's creatures. She's the character of it. The symbol of it. And the metaphor here is uh, she has the wine and they are drunk in it. She has what people often crave, you know, the cordial of life to make people feel better about themselves or the world that they live in. And the problem with providing wine, or you know the problem with wine, is if you're not self-controlled, if you drink too much, yeah, there's a sense in which all your troubles will go away only temporarily, very temporarily. Because there's a bite to it as well. There are consequences to it as well. You forget all your troubles, but that's not all it does. It makes you drunk. And when you get drunk, you are incredibly vulnerable. How many stories do you hear about people saying, yeah, when I, that happened when I was drunk because you don't have all your wits about you. And you see how the prostitute is feeding the evil desires of humanity. And they're just drinking more and more, of get, thinking that they're being set free and yet they're being held more and more in bondage. There are dangers to these kind of allurements that are out there in the world. Things that our own hearts yearn for that can be very powerful and, and seductive and yes, even addictive. The prostitute is glad to give the mass of humanity these things. Glad to keep humanity in a sense of bondage. I recently read an interview, uh, just, a, just a, quick, a quick article about a rock star back when I was growing up. And I believe it was Stevie Nicks, if you've heard of her. She was popular in the 70s. And she was known for doing a lot of drugs back then. 
And she said the problem in this interview, the problem is if you start, and I'm quoting her here, if you start, you better know how to quit. If you don't know how to quit, it will kill you in the end. But most people can't quit. It's very hard to quit. So she says the wise thing to do is never start. Wisdom from a 70s rock star of all people. You know, there are things in this world, lots of things. Well, sin is like that. Sin is something that will keep us in bondage. It will, uh, it will lure us. It will create this addiction where we start living lives where we think, I have to have that in my life now. That's a part of my life. And all it does is tighten the chain on us and make life more miserable. And therefore, we need to put very, very strict boundaries. Some things are are more dangerous than others. And the things that are the most dangerous, we need to put very, very strict boundaries on our hearts and our minds and in our lives to stay away from those things if they're that truly that dangerous. As I thought about this passage, I was reviewing it this morning, I couldn't help but to think about um, Pinocchio on Pleasure Island. And all the promises of the freedom and you can smoke cigarettes and you do all this bad stuff that your parents tell you not to do. And so they are all invited to Pleasure Island, but that island is cursed. And so while they're enjoying their life of addictions and pleasures, little boys are turning into donkeys. And I'm a kid. A mischievous kid. And I didn't even like that scene. That scene scared me, turning into a donkey. Like, wow. And there's a sense of that. That's a good little um, visual. So the great prostitute is giving the, de- the dwellers what they want. She's their dealer, sorts, uh, trying to satisfy the lusts. Of course, you know, the problem with sin is that lust can never be satisfied, and that's what makes it sin and that's what makes it so powerful because you just want more and more and more and of course she is deceptive she's arrayed in purple and scarlet and holds in her hand a golden cup she dresses nice she plays a part she tries to be as attractive to the world as possible so uh, i'm a nice person i'm a safe person but in that cup is abominations unimaginable and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitution of the earth's abomination. What you get when you come to this attractive prostitute is death. Just as the church is often called the mother of the saints, this prostitute is the mother of the wicked, as Satan is the father of lies. So we find in Scripture often that God uses history and places and events and things of the path to serve as a framework and a point of reference for making points in the present and in the future. In chapter 16, we saw a lot of these judgments were very similar to judgments that were poured out on Egypt. The Egyptians who uh, enslaved God's people. And so he gives kind of this framework of how he judges his enemies, but also a framework on how he delivers his own people. Well, Babylon has become such a framework or a metaphor of representing that which opposes God, representing all that is evil. So it it literally in, in history, Babylon was an empire. 
And it did oppose the people of God and kept the people of God captive. Um, God gave Babylon many chances to be used for good and in its arrogance, it did not and it was judged. But it was a real place, and it, but it becomes symbolic. So in John's day when this was written, the, the Babylon was the empire of Rome. And there were lots of evils that were taking place in Rome. That was the world power. And Rome opposed God. You know the history of Rome that when they uh, conquered a different people group, they would swap gods with them. And the deal was, sure, we can take your God and put in our pantheon, but you have to worship ours as well. And then that turned into full-fledged emperor worships, worship where the emperors, they decided they wanted to be worshipped as God. And it became a true litmus test of your loyalty to the Roman Empire. And if you were a citizen or you were in their empire and you would not bow down and worship the emperor as a god, then you would be persecuted and possibly even put to death. And so this was a form of idolatry. If you were to give in to this in that very day, in John's day, then that's, that's giving in to the immorality of the age, giving in to the beast or the prostitute of the age, because it was demanded upon you. It was forced upon you. You didn't have, it was no like, hey, uh, you get to choose curtain A or curtain B. It was no, this is the way it is because I am the power of this empire. And it's that same kind of uh, power or representation of evil and force, forcing um, culture and ungodliness on a people that continues to live in other empires. Empires that have been in the past, empires that are in the present, and empires to come. So this same picture is played over and over again in the world as rulers and empires demand and force evil on and evil ways and enforce conformity upon their subjects. It's a form of spiritual prostitution. And John, as he's treated to this vision by this angel in verse 6, he says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. He, he's marveling at how wicked she is. He can't believe how abominable she is, how evil she is, because, you know, there's that seduction there. But he's seeing her for what she really is. And she, they are drunk on the blood of the saints. That will come up again and we'll look at that a little bit later. That's a dangerous thing to do is to get drunk on the blood of the saints. She has spilled their blood because they refuse to not bow down to her. And I want to just say that I know that especially in the book of Revelation, there's a lot that's written about all the things that God is against. Because He is a holy God and He is a just God. And He has to judge sin according to His nature. So He's against a lot of things. But this is a good reminder that God is not just against things, but God is for things. And one of the things He is for, He is for His people. He is for His saints. He does not take lightly when His people endure suffering. He knows about it. He takes note of it. And that's just another great evil that will receive His wrath. So as we think about all of these judgments and we consider sin and evil, we want to realize that God is not just a God who is against things. He's a God 
for things, and the things that He is for is you. If you are a child of God. So if you think about what you're facing in your life today, you think, think about the struggles in your life today, just remember, yep, God's against a lot of things, but one thing He is absolutely for is you. He has redeemed you. He's invested in you. He loves you. He knows every day that transpires. Every page on the counter that flips. He's taking note of all this. And He is absolutely a God that is for you. Second, the mysteries revealed in 7 through 14. Let's read those. So the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers, the dweller, uh, dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the, women, the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that what was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. All this, you getting all this? Makes perfect sense, right? And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords, king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So John sees this woman. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. He's astonished at the evil there. Well, what is the mystery? Now, you remember that a mystery in Scripture isn't quite like the mysteries that we're used to. It's not like a puzzle to be solved. It's not uh, clues uh, with, with hints that you need to be decoded and so forth. It's simply something that has not been revealed yet by God. It's, uh, it's still closed. It's closed off to us. When God reveals it, it's a mystery no more. But God knows what it is. And the mystery here, though he may give us little hints in Scripture before it's revealed in a big way where, it, uh, where we understand what it is. So the mystery to be uh, revealed here is how what becomes clear is that the woman, the prostitute, Babylon, and the beast, and the dragon, and all of these forces of evil, and the emperors and everything, they're all in cahoots. They're all they all represent one big army of evil under the rule of the dragon, Satan. They're not separate entities, but they're one army, one uh, entity here. The beast will become known, it says, to the world as a Christ figure. He'll have power to work miracles. We've already read about this. Uh, and we're given an indication that evil or the beast will be given this deadly blow and then but will remarkably rise or recover from it as if rising from the dead. And so we see these, this Christ-likeness and this um, copycat of the Holy Trinity that comes forth in evil. And all these things will be put in place when Christ comes back. 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and they are also seven kings. When you speak about the seven mountains in John's day, Rome actually, as part of their boundaries and borders, had seven hills with seven cities in it. And they were very prominent. And so by using that terminology, people would immediately identify with the Roman Empire. We're not so sure about the kings. People, scholars have tried to figure out, well, what seven kings are we talking about? If it's Rome, then he must be talking about the emperors. But I'm just, uh, and there are a lot of different theories about it. I can just tell you that in order to come up with a theory that sounds very um, tight and convincing, you have to fudge a lot of things. You have to fudge names. You have to fudge numbers. You have to neglect emperors that reign for just a short time. Like there's just not seven emperors in a row. So we're not sure what that represents. But the, the big picture and the big idea is like the city Um, These emperors, these kings, they represent opposition to God. Of course, they um, they are real rulers. They are people that throughout time or history have sat on some kind of throne. They're historical figures. And their opposition uh, against God is concrete. It's tangible. It's felt by the world. God certainly takes note of it. But it's this cumulative idea. It's a cumulative idea of the big picture of the evil that builds up and the evil that will be judged in the consummation. All the different tyrants and all the different rulers. All of the opposition to God. It's connected. It's a network of evil directed by Satan. I think it's worth saying that someone once um, said that the book of Revelation is similar or can be called a tale of two cities. Of course, it's a play on titles of Dickens' book. But this would be a tale of two cities, the prostitute and the bride. Because when you look at Revelation and you see this battle going between God and the dragon and you see the way the dragon has, he wants to mark his people as God has marked the foreheads of his people and so forth. So now you have this beautiful picture of Christ and Drake sang that song this morning and he has his bride it's the body of Christ and we are the bride and there's this beautiful relationship and yet on the other side in the darkness you see uh, the main woman is the prostitute and it and it's it's this realm of evil and she is has her people and is alluring her people but only to their death and it reminds us that In life, you know, we make decisions and we see good and evil. And there really is. Revelation puts it in black and white and it really is black and white. You're in one city or the other. You're serving one God or a false God, the true God or a false God. It's just a great reminder for us to think wisely and make wise decisions. God gives us the grace to do that. There'll come a time when our true love will be revealed. When the end comes, when the consummation comes, when we face the Lord, what we live for and the decisions that we make will reveal what was really in our hearts and what we really loved. And so the appeal of Scripture is to repent and turn to the Lord now while we still have an opportunity, while we still have daylight. So all of this evil, the kings, the prostitute, the emperors are all of one mind working under the dragon And they endeavor to oppose God, to free themselves from the reign of God. 
And a lot of this is figurative. And we don't know, but we do know that there's some kind of war, right? There's some kind of war out there, and this judgment, therefore, is inevitable. And we know for sure that we already know the outcome. Because God in His grace gives us the outcome. And that is, Jesus wins. God wins. So the outcome has been decreed. And it's unstoppable. No power on earth can stop it. No prayer of a saint can stop what has been written by the Word of God. Jesus wins. That's a spoiler alert. A spoiler alert of what happens to the world. What's going to become of us? We already know. That God will judge evil and He will reward those that put their faith in Christ. What a blessing it is to know the end. I don't know that we realize, and I think God spares us from details, honestly. I just think He spares us from knowing too many details. It's a grace. And knowing the end is just incredible. I'm reminded of an illustration that um, C.J. Mahaney gave one time listen to a sermon that he gave so he's a he's a big sports enthusiast and he loves football and he had to work during a the football game so he couldn't be home to watch it but he recorded it and he couldn't get he couldn't wait to get off work so he could go home and watch this game it was one of his favorite teams and he happened to be talking to um somebody a little bit later on and they said yeah i'm sure you heard about the game and he and they did a spoiler alert Told him who won it. Yeah, such and such won by so many points. But it changed the way he watched the game. So he, he knew now the result. And he knew that actually his favorite team won. But he still enjoyed watching it. But he knew that when that interception came, it wasn't going to be the end. And he knew like when they were down by many, many points, he knew it wasn't going to end like that. And so it affected his whole demeanor at looking at this very competitive game. And I think as we think about knowing the end that God has shared with us, that we know that He loves us. He knows we know where we're going. He's told us this. We know there will be a new world, a new heavens, new earth. Our hearts and bodies will be transformed into 2.0 version. Better than the original. And He's given this to us. And it should affect the way we live our lives. It should affect the way that we don't get as anxious as maybe if it looks like everything is going to pot and we're losing this battle, we're losing this game or this competition because in the end we know who wins. Or if an interception takes place or something terrible takes place or the, the best the, the quarterback gets injured. Now how can you even play with the quarterback, star quarterback injured? See, knowing the end in the final days should make a difference in our hearts. And soothe them. And we, I'm grateful for, it, grateful for it as a grace of God. Lastly, we see a, a great segue into this God's sovereign purpose, 15 through 18. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the, pro, where the prostitute is seated are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into the hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast 
until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now that is mind-boggling. Talk about the sovereignty of God. So you have the forces of evil willingly coming together. They're all working under one mind, Satan. And they are all opposing God. And yet a turn of events takes place. And that is now even those uh, proponents of evil, the team, the captains, they turn on each other. And the forces of evil turn on the prostitute, turns on Babylon, and leaves her destitute, destitute, destroys her. So you have here evil turning on evil. Evil not just opposing God, but turning on itself. And you have the sovereign God, though they were making these decisions to bind together so that they could be one powerful force, it was all in the sovereign plan of God to do so. And in the end result, you have evil or sin doing what evil and sin does best. It is self-destructive. It, it's not last, it, it cannot, by its definition and by its nature, continue to last because it always wants more Sin by its nature devours and devours and devours. And we see that even in our world where you see great entities or institutions of evil. They want more and more and more and they crush themselves. And you have evil fighting evil who can be more greedy, right? And it's this terrible network that takes place. And in the end, this plays out as well. It's self-destructive. And in history, we see uh, tyrants are overcome often by a bigger tyrant. Uh, wicked rulers are often overcome by someone that is just more evil and powerful and greedy and ruthless than they are. But it's all in our history now when we look at different empires. We study them. We know about them. But the reason they're in our history books is because they're no more. And these great forces that used to be so admirable and you thought they're formidable and there's nothing that we can do to oppose them, well, we read about them in our history books now because they are, for the most part, extinct. Uh, the, the literal true Babylon that existed, modern-day Iraq, is mostly ruins. A very unimpressive place this day. Today, Rome is uh, probably more of a tourist attraction than anything else. It's no threat to anybody. In our day, we saw the wall of communist Russia come tumbling down, this power that we thought could never be stopped. Sinful earthly powers eat themselves up while our God reigns supreme. Arrogant thinking, in this sense, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. And in the end, judgment will come on the evil. It's a real struggle. It's a real battle. But I am also comforted in the fact that God's purposes are served even in the midst of all the evil that unfolds before our, our very eyes. All the things that are unknown. God's sovereign purposes reign and rule. People willfully oppose God and yet God's will is perfectly accomplished. And at the end of the day, in God's appointed times and purposes will be fulfilled. And this is why the voice of God in Scripture 
appeals to the hearts of men. I'm the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I created you. Come to me for forgiveness and eternal life. Abandon yourself to me and I will be your God and you will be my people. May God bless the preaching of His Word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.